Welcome to The Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. This week in The Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy, I'm Kevin McCullough. Great to be with you as we close out 2022 and welcome in a new year. This week, we'll look back on perhaps the most consequential event of the year as it relates to the dignity of human life the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Now the work begins. And why progress is so difficult. Abortion is to them a sacrament. We'll look at the fentanyl crisis facilitated by our porous border. We have a conscious group of individuals that are poisoning our kids in our country, literally poisoning them. Plus, a fresh challenge to get into God's Word. I think it's important to get up high upon the mountaintop and see the big picture before you start diving into the smaller details. And why... It is worth the effort. There's an amazing continuity to the scriptures, which can only be explained by divine inspiration. We've got all this and more. I'm Kevin McCullough, your host, coming to you from my home station in New York City. You can hear my own program live each weekday afternoon on AM 570, The Mission. Take a moment to follow Christian Outlook on Twitter, at TC Outlook, and you can follow me on Instagram, at KMC Radio. Great to be with you. As we close out the year, we'll begin our program today with a look at the most consequential event for the dignity of human life in nearly five decades. Yes, the end of Roe v. Wade and the new precedent in the Dobbs decision was that important. Catholics have, in many aspects, led the way in the pro-life movement. Frank Pavone of Priests for Life has been very much a part of this battle. In fact, he's paid a price for his activism, having been officially defrocked by the Vatican. Pavone was a guest on my home station here in New York, AM 570, The Mission. Sitting in for me during the Christmas break was Dave Watson, a good friend and a local pastor here in New York. Correct me again if I'm wrong. If a practicing Catholic is advocating for abortion, the church really has almost a responsibility to deny that individual communion, do they not? Yes, that has been articulated by the bishops, um, by a canon law, that it is inconsistent with receiving communion to be out of communion with the church on such a, a basic matter. Uh, or another way of looking at it is uh, just biblically, Jesus says, when you bring your gift to the altar, if you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there. First, go back and be reconciled with your brother, then come and offer your gift. So coming to Mass, including receiving of communion, this is a, is a sacrifice of worship to God. But if somebody is aborting babies or saying they can be aborted or not recognizing that they need to be protected in the womb, they are not reconciled with their brothers and sisters in the womb. These are our brothers and sisters. These yes. Babies. And that's the basis then of saying, well, how can you be welcoming Jesus? which is what you do when you receive communion, and rejecting his children. How does that work? The fact is, it doesn't. Uh, And so, yes, you're correct that people who are, especially in positions like Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi have, where you are determining in a large part the abortion policy of the United States, you have it in your hands to decide whether tens of millions of babies live or die, that doesn't carry some moral responsibility. And, and you know, people who say, oh, well, the church shouldn't be getting too political. When the church speaks up in a situation like this and tells those in authority that they have to protect these babies, that's not the church being political. That's the church being the church. That's right. Being the word of God into our lives. How much of our lives are under the, the lordship of Jesus Christ? 70%, 90%? No, 100%. And that includes, therefore, our activities in the political arena. We, we say in the Protestant church, he's Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. At all. Beautiful. That's right. 
Um, it's just, it's a it's a crazy situation. And to think that Pelosi and, and Biden, forty years each of them, that's forty million babies aborted uh, under their watch. That's that's un, unbelievable. And, and this year, Father Papone, we had an amazing an amazing victory in that realm, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Where where exactly were you when the decision came down? I was in front of my computer like I am now with the camera on. We were live broadcasting because we knew the court was issuing decisions that day. And so I was broadcasting. I had a colleague sitting next to me. He was looking on the Supreme Court website. We were all monitoring it. And then he was the first one to shout out, we got Dobbs. We got Dobbs. He handed me the phone. I clicked on the link. Within seconds of that decision having been posted by the Supreme Court, I announced the, the holding of the decision. And here's the holding, by the way. The Constitution does not provide a right to abortion. And therefore, this is a key thing for people to understand what the Dobbs decision did. It said, we return to the people and their elected representatives the question of abortion. So in other words, Roe v. Wade was saying to the legislators, you can't protect these babies. Even if the people want it, even if you want it, even if your governor wants it, you can't pass laws to protect these babies. Well, that's ridiculous. That has nothing to do with the Constitution. So now the court said, okay, we are saying this is in your hands. We're not going to stand in your way, American people and your elected representatives, if you want to protect unborn children. So now what the what the court did was it didn't give the protection. It gave us the right to make the protection. So now the work, that's why many people are saying, well, now the work begins. You know, now all the pro-life work that we described a moment ago, the educating, the voting, the lobbying, the creation of laws, the passing of laws, all of that now is going to have even more effect than it did before. So we've this is no time to walk away from the battle. This is the time to get more engaged, full speed ahead, and let's get more of these pro-life laws, and let's get our legislators who are willing to pass such laws elected in the first place. In our culture, and I hate to say it this way, and I don't mean any sacrilege, abortion has almost become a sacrament to the left. And those who oppose it are seen as just horrible people, and they suffer terrible persecution. I mean, they wanted to kill the Supreme Court justice— Kavanaugh, you know, that sent people not just to annoy him, somebody was coming to, to take his life. And you yourself within the Catholic Church are being persecuted for that belief. Why? Why is it so vehement against people who are pro-life? Yeah, it's a, it's a very fundamental question. Uh, and I think that the answer is on a couple of different levels. First, on a very human psychological level, we were discussing before that uh, the Supreme Court created this fictional right to abortion. Okay, when they did that in 1973, they gave the abortion movement a free pass. And, and what I mean is the supporters of abortion no longer had to make their case to the American people or to their legislators of why abortion is a good thing. They didn't have to make that case because the Supreme Court decreed it to be a good thing. We would always have to make our case for pro-life on the merits. Who is this baby? What does abortion do to the baby? What does abortion do to the mother and to the rest of society? And why should the law protect these babies? So we've always made the case on its merits. We've done the hard work of persuading people. The other side, all they've had to do all these years is hide behind the robes of the justices and invoke this constitutional right. Like a, a spoiled child who's been given something, you know, the child's whole short life so far, and then it's taken away. And you rant and you rave. That's why they started attacking the pregnancy centers. They started attacking the churches and so forth. On a deeper spiritual level, it's because of what you just said. Abortion is to them a sacrament. They really believe. We're talking about the hardcore promoters and advocates 
uh, who run the abortion industry. The right to abortion is a sacred dogma. The practice of abortion is a sacrament, and the abortion clinic is their church. So if we take action that ends up denying that dogma, preventing that sacrament, and closing down those churches, they're going to be just as committed to defending all of that as we are to defending authentic Christian dogma and true churches that worship the true God. And this is what's going on. So now, at the core, many have said, you know, abortion is a satanic sacrifice. Because we see, as you know, in Scripture, the sacrifice of children to demons, right? And it was a key sin for which Israel was subject to the exile, right? In both cases, north and south, uh, Scripture identifies that shedding of innocent blood as 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 a pivotal sin that the people did not repent of. Now, does this mean that women going in to get abortions are saying, I'm going to sacrifice my baby to demons today? No. But again, those who are supporting this, when we say them, someone is worshiping the devil, we don't necessarily mean, I mean, there are some who will literally invoke the evil spirit who is the devil, who yes. scripture is real. But but a lot of these people, when they say hail Satan and they're worshiping the devil, what they're really saying is, it's all about my freedom, my truth. Me. It, it, the, right? It's me instead of God. That's the war in life. Abortion is a key, pivotal provision of that. It, it, it's, it's like, okay, I have to be able to abort a child so that I can do whatever I want. It's my body, my choice. And this is the source, again, of so much of this is just irrational obsessive yes. uh, focus and rage. If, if you so much as speak against abortion, these people are acting as though, you know, it's the end of the world. The crisis at our southern border continues, and it's clear it's something we'll be carrying with us into the new year. But the unwillingness of so many of our elected leaders to secure our nation's border is taking a toll on human lives. As the fentanyl comes across the southern border, James Capra is a former DEA agent now leading the Frontline Leadership Group. He was a guest of Gino Geraci on 94.7 FM, The Word, in Denver. More than half of Americans seem to blame migrants or the failed border policies. Other people blame something else that's going on in our culture and our society. I just wanted your take on what you see happening right now. Yeah, well, you know what? If, if you go back, you know, I served with the, with the DEA for almost 30 years. Throughout my entire tenure, that's pretty much been the poll. We blame it on one thing, blame it on another, blame it on the user, Blame it on inability to protect our sovereign country. And, and there's enough blame to go all the way around. Right. And part of it has to do with how we're looking at the drug culture today, how we look from a legislative standpoint. We, you know, we've decided in a lot of areas that we're just going to legalize certain substances that were considered and have been illegal and, by the way, extremely harmful. Right. And so anytime in the last few years, anytime you get a decrease in harm, if you, in other words, your perception of harm decreases, Use and abuse always go up, always historically go up. And remember that drugs in general, they're all targeted to who? A younger population. And so now we're faced with this fentanyl crisis. And what's happening right now is my good friend Derek Maltz, who is Derek and I work together. He's been traveling around speaking about it. He says what we have today is we literally have – we don't have just accidental overdoses. We have a conscious group of individuals that are poisoning our kids in our country, literally poisoning them by supplying – a counterfeit drug. So you got kids trying to score something like a Xanax or a Percocet or something like that. They're getting it from Mexico. The problem is fentanyl, which is literally used as a anesthetic and a pain reliever and has been around for a long time. 
it's put together in micrograms. So if you think of a sharpened pencil mm-hmm. and the tip of that pencil, and you just put a little bit of fentanyl on the tip of that pencil, that's enough to kill you. And so what we have is we have the fentanyl being produced in China, the Chinese organized crime dealing with cartels. They're shipping them either the fentanyl or the precursors to make the fentanyl. In Mexico, they're putting it together, and then they advertise as all these counterfeit drugs. And that's what we're seeing a lot of. So it's coming across the border and being sold in, in either pills or packet or, again, counterfeit substances. And now I think we're up to 110,000 people that we lose a year to drug overdoses. 60% yeah. of that is from fentanyl. Coming up, a fresh invitation to get back into daily disciplined reading of the Bible. I think it's important to get up high upon the mountaintop and see the big picture before you start diving into the smaller details. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment, stay with us. Celebrating our 25th anniversary, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy invites you to learn from one of our beloved teachers, Dr. Gordon Lloyd, in a four-part webinar series titled The Roots of Political Economy, Capitalism versus Socialism. This free video series teaches foundational principles of free markets, as well as the philosophers behind socialism. Find out more at go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. That's go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. Get your kicks on Route 66. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Kevin McCullough. As we all close out the year 2022 and look forward to the new year ahead, this is often a time when we make resolutions. Maybe you want to lose weight. Maybe you want to pursue a new job. Let me encourage you to renew your efforts of Bible reading. Whether it's something brand new for you or if you're continuing an already established pattern, you'll be greatly blessed. Ron Jones, our next guest, created two volumes as tools to help us. He called it the ultimate road trip through the Bible. Jones was a guest of Don Crow on WAVA in the nation's capital. Ron, talk about uh, that which may puzzle a few of the younger among us. Well, this is Route 66 stuff. Of course, it's iconic in American history. Well, it is, and, you know, uh, anybody can Google Route 66 and uh, enjoy the nostalgic trip through America, through that um, that old uh, uh, highway system. Of course, the, the, the connection is uh, to the Scriptures. There are 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. I kind of had, again, this crazy idea, Don, that if if we could package a journey through the Bible that was as fun and as adventuresome as a Route 66 trip across America, maybe people would read their Bibles more. You know, it is the best-selling book of all time, but unfortunately it's the least read in our culture. And I wanted to create a resource that helped people navigate their way through God's Word. Well, and as we both know, the catchphrase out of that song was, get your kicks on Route 66, and I can't think of a better description to really reverently but truthfully talk about what happens when we begin to really get into the Word of God. It has its own potency, if you will, that changes people's lives, doesn't it? Well, it does, and I kind of grabbed that phrase, and I said, let's get our Bible kicks on yeah. uh, the biblical Route 66. And uh, uh, the key to it, I think, Don, is, is making sure we kind of come up to a 30,000-foot level. I, I think for a lot of people, they may have respect for the Bible, and even many Christians know I, I, I need to read my Bible. But it's a little bit intimidating. It's not just a book. It's 66 books. Uh, there are over 600,000 words 
in the Bible. And Don, that can be daunting enough to try to navigate your way through. Where do you begin? Do you, do you start in Genesis? Uh, you know, how does Genesis relate to Romans? Why is Obadiah in the Bible? And, and does it have anything to do with my life today? These are all the kinds of questions I try to answer in this two-volume set. And, and to, to piece together, again, the larger arc of God's story from Genesis to Revelation, understanding that it's one story, and there's, and you've already alluded to it, Don, one main character. Yeah. It's the Christ who is to come from an Old Testament perspective. And from a New Testament perspective, it's the Christ who came and who promised to come again. That's what the Bible is about. And when you understand that big picture, it changes the way you think about every book of the Bible and every story within that book. It's all about Jesus Christ. And folks, if you really do want to get, I like the phrase you used, Ron, a 30,000-foot view, really a good overview. I'm just looking now, for example, at the contents section of the Old Testament. You've got it divided into, let's see, what, five road trips. And I love the way you've broken that down. Can you walk us through that just briefly as to what each of those road trips is? Yeah, so there there are five road trips, as we call them in the Old Testament, beginning with the books of the law, that's Genesis through Deuteronomy. Then you get into the historical books of the Bible, that's Joshua through Esther, a pretty long slog there through uh, Old Testament history. Uh, Then you run into um, road trip number three, the wisdom books of the Bible, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon. Those are some of the places we like to go to the most. Following that are the the major prophets, uh, Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. And then road trip number five closes out uh, the Old Testament with the minor prophets. You come into the New Testament, and road trip number six begins with the Gospels in the early church. Uh, That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then the book of Acts. Road trip seven, the Pauline epistles, uh, Romans through Philemon. And then we finish up road trip number eight, uh, Hebrews through the book of Revelation. So, again, it kind of has that road trip and Route 66 theme to it, but two volumes, and there are 66 chapters in the two volumes, meaning you get an overview of every book of the Bible. And, Don, when you're studying the Scriptures, I, I think it's important to, you know, get up you know, high upon the mountaintop, as it were, and see the big picture before you start diving into uh, the smaller details. Talk about how it has affected you in your own personal life and in your ministry. What are some of the takeaways from doing this project? And it is a considerable project in and of itself. I'm sure it represents a long journey of your own. I'm so glad the Lord led you to do it. But what are some of the takeaways for you? Well, just the consistency of God's Word over time and the trustworthiness of it. I mean, this is a book, uh, the Bible, that is, was written over 15, 1,600 years by 40 different human authors led by the Holy Spirit, three different original languages, three different continents. And yet, Don, there's an amazing continuity to the Scriptures, uh, which can only be explained by divine inspiration. I mean, if you uh, tried to bring 40 people together to write anything that remotely, you know, told the same story, that, that would be a fool's errand. But there are many reasons why we can look at the Bible and know it is exactly what it claims to be, and that is the Word of God. Uh, one of those things is, is the, the amazing continuity from Genesis all the way through Revelation. It really does tell one story and uh, is about one main character. 
so for me, the, the, the study over uh, the course of more than a year just confirmed and strengthened what I already believed as a pastor for all these years is uh, we, we can trust the Word of God, and we can believe it, and we can stake our lives on it. You said earlier the Bible is the best-selling book of all time, but least read uh, in our generation. Why would you say that's so? What's happened? Well, again, I, I think it's uh, uh, intimidating for some people. Uh, it can be a challenge to read. Where do I start? If I start in Genesis, again, my, my eyes kind of gloss over by the time I get to Leviticus because I don't see the big picture. Um, I also just think we're living at a time, and maybe this is true in all generations, where we're so busy, Don, doing other things. We really have to make it a priority to read God's Word. The Bible still has the answers for today. Uh, The Bible, unlike any other book, because it is God's Word, Don, it diagnoses the human condition. A lot of people say, well, why did Jesus have to die upon a cross? Well, if you understand that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death, we're in a pretty sorry state without him. And God had a plan for reconciling a sinful man to himself, and it took the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what the story is about from Genesis, especially Genesis chapter 3, all the way through to Revelation. It's God's plan of redemption, and it has to do with a, a nation called Israel in the Old Testament, his chosen people, through whom Messiah came. And here we are at Christmas time, Don, and, and we think about that, that babe in Bethlehem, the Christ child, the promised one, and all the Old Testament prophecies concerning. He came in Bethlehem, and he lived in this, uh, this planet and uh, lived a perfect life and died a substitutionary death for you and for me, and then rose from the dead and promised to come again. And so we as uh, New Testament believers look back in faith to that event 2,000 years ago and uh, put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and look forward to his coming. Uh, We love his appearing and can't wait until he comes again. Coming up, campus ministry. Young people are feeling isolated and they are just looking for somebody to look them in the eye and say, let's talk about your soul when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. It's a look at today's most compelling stories and provides responses from key conservatives in media and politics. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com in five minutes. You will be the most informed person in the office. That's DaybreakInsider.com. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Kevin McCullough. When we look at the state of the nation today, it may seem pretty bleak. But young people today are hungry. Or at least they are hurting and searching for answers. That's the observation from wretched radio host Todd Friel in his ministry experiences on college campuses in recent days. Friel was a guest of Lee Michaels of AM 980, The Mission in the Twin Cities. We'll pick up Lee's comments about his own ministry to his own mother before she died. I hope and pray that all those seeds that were planted and all the conversations we had, and, and especially the conversation you had with her, is one of those that would have made a difference. But 
that's one of those hard things that, Todd, as you know, when you're sharing the gospel, especially with loved ones, we can't get hung up on the decision. It, it is their choice, and we just have to turn that over to the Lord. Yeah, that's and that actually helps us to witness better. I remember when I first started hitting the streets to witness 20-some years ago after listening to Ray Comfort, and I felt like I had to win every debate and argument, and this person needed to drop their knees on the spot, <laughs> repent, and put their trust in Jesus, or it was a disaster. And yeah. when you thinking that salvation is incumbent upon your performance, wow, it lightens the load, and you can actually just talk to somebody. I've been going out to the university campuses still, and I've noticed the witness encounters get longer and longer, and I know the culture gets more and more hostile toward Christianity. But if you can find yourself a sinner, university student or otherwise, I'm telling you, the kids want to talk these days. When I'm finished with somebody, we've maybe spent an hour together talking about nothing but the law and the gospel. I get the distinct feeling that they look at me like, do you, do, you, do you have to go? They are just desperate to talk to a big person who's actually interested in them. So lose the idea that you have to win the argument or that you have to convert the person and just love on them and share great news. Uh, when when they see that you actually care about them and you are, like you said, not there to win the argument, but to show them uh, the love and compassion and the concern you have for their eternal life can have an impact. Um, how how have things changed in uh, maybe a very obvious question or maybe not uh, when you're on campuses from 15, 16, 17 years ago to today? I've seen seasons. I have seen where you go through a period where it's pretty tense most of the time. But then I've seen other seasons that will follow right on its heels where the kids are receptive and they want to hear right now. I think we're in a season where students want to hear young people are feeling isolated. Social media, uh, no matter how many friends they supposedly have, the pixels don't make up for people. So the kids are feeling alone. The COVID lockdown didn't help them feel connected to other people regularly even with two parent homes mom and dad are busy pursuing things and don't have time for the kids and they are just looking for somebody to look them in the eye and say let's talk about your soul you're learning all kinds of stuff probably rotten stuff frankly in the university classroom let's talk about your eternity let's talk about something heavier and i'm telling you they dig it a lot yeah, I, I can imagine uh, there's nothing more precious than sharing that or people understanding that relationship with Christ and the impact that it can have. And now it doesn't make everything, you know, become roses uh, that minute. But, you know, for me, there was a lot of fear and anxiety that I literally saw leave me uh, when I understood and accepted hmm. the gospel. And yeah, I use that as... Okay, there, there's, there, I think if every Christian looks at their life, you're right. We are not fully sanctified until we've been glorified, but you will see fruit. And Lee, I'll tell you one of the silly ones. There were several, actually. First of all, I was horrified of death. It terrified me. I didn't know God. I didn't know anything about Jesus. I knew nothing. And I knew if I died, 
there's going to be somebody who judges me and it ain't going to go well for me. And as a kid, I was terrified of death. Mm -hmm. Now, after getting saved, it's not like I'm looking forward to like, Ooh, I've got to rush the day when I get to die. But that's how I feel now. It's like, it ain't going to be terrible. It's going to be the best day of my life because that's when eternity begins. Now, I guess somebody could go to a psychologist and have a better attitude about death, but I'm just telling you, God so changed my heart regarding death, flying in an airplane. Oh, like I used to <laughs> go to the airport and then call the client I was supposed to meet in Timbuktu and say, oh, the plane got canceled because I was afraid to go on the airplane. Wow. Now, it, that's, I'm telling you, I got saved, and it was like, boop, that's all done. I get on the airplane and fly because if God is going to take my life that day, he can do it on the ground as well as he can do it in the air. <laughs> Coming up. You are God and I am not. And we have to get to a place where we're honestly saying that from our heart. Reliance on Christ. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Celebrating our 25th anniversary, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy invites you to learn from one of our beloved teachers, Dr. Gordon Lloyd, in a four-part webinar series titled The Roots of Political Economy, Capitalism versus Socialism. This free video series teaches foundational principles of free markets, as well as the philosophers behind socialism. Find out more at go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. That's go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Kevin McCullough. Whether you're a student on campus, a parent with the stresses of bringing up kids today, or a grandparent looking at the legacy you'd like to leave for your grandkids, whatever your stage of life, I hope you're reaching for a place of complete reliance on Christ alone. That sort of motivation is what pushed Zach Elliott to write his book, Now I See, an Invitation to Life to the Full. Zach was the guest of Georgine Rice on KBDQ 93.9 FM in Portland. Well, that day I really had hit that point of saying I, I cannot continue in the way that I'm currently operating. So I shut the door and I said, God, I think I'm done. I think that it really just praying in conversation with God saying, I think I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And the best thing that I can describe is, you know, you hear that quiet voice like at the center mm -hmm. of your brain and it's just God speaking and you just hear truth. And I was brought to Proverbs, the end of Proverbs, where there's no vision, the people perish. And that just rang in my head. And on the back side of that, the vision is Jesus. The vision is Jesus. It was just a whisper kind of thought. And my mom had given me a book written by a guy from England named Pete Gregg, and he wrote a poem. And at the beginning of that poem, it says, the vision is Jesus. And that just kept repeating, you know, where there's no vision that people perish, the vision is Jesus, almost like a call and response. And so I just wrestled with that. I prayed with that. But I just said, Jesus, you are the vision. And all of those old hymns, be the center and be mm -hmm. thou my vision. All that stuff was kind of stirred up in me in that prayer. And I just said, Jesus, you are the center and you haven't been. And if I'm going to continue, if this is going to continue, you must be the center. And so I just went to my desk and I took out four printer pages out of my printer and I wrote the vision is Jesus. And I just wrote a VU for me, that was vision up. And then I wrote a VI and a VO. And I just resigned that day to say, I don't want to participate with anything where Jesus is not the center. Mm -hmm. And I want to look to him. I want to look more like him. 
And I want to look with him and see who and what and how he sees in the world. And those four pieces of paper actually became the outline for this book. And that was like 14 years ago. And so I kept those. And that became my own personal way of discipleship and discipleship in my family and the way that we oriented pastoral leadership in the church. That was kind of the inner DNA. And along the way, the last 14 years, I've had several people say, you should share that in a different form. You know, you've talked about it in small groups and sermons and conversations over coffee. But a good friend of mine came to me three years ago and said, would you write that down and help to make this possible? But it was that day, really at a desperate place, saying, God, I think I'm done, that he answered with, I was done because I had no vision. Mm-hmm. He he had stopped being the center for me, and he needed to bring me back to that place. Now, my guess is every believer who's listening would agree with everything that you've said, that Christ should be the center, that uh, that he should be our vision, but may not know how to get from mm-hmm. where we are uh, a little bit shackled into a place where we're confined by what's familiar to us and what's accepted even in our congregations to making him the focus. How do we make that transition? How do we begin to live out what we all agree the scripture tells us is what he has in store for us, which is so much more than most of us are experiencing? Yeah, for me, I needed that return to my creaturehood, mm-hmm. to that creator-creature relationship that had to get realigned. And that had to be the starting place for relationship. Him as creator, me as a creature that he made, and that recognition that I was made by him and for him. And I I really think, again, our culture is moving so fast and we want really wonderful answers and, and great intellectual answers or powerful action steps that we can take. But I really think that the most powerful thing we can do is return to him as creature and come to the creator and say, I miss you. I long for you. I need you. And and really confess. It's a, it's we talk about it in terms of a creature confession that says you are God and I am not. And we have to get to a place where we're honestly saying that from our heart. I think that's the starting point. That's what I found. That's what my co-author Rebecca Sandberg found is that we had attached quite a bit of under other armor other things intellectually, mm-hmm. patchwork theology and culture. So it, it had all kind of encumbered us. And we needed to let that go and come back to a starting place to say, we were made by you and for you. You are God. I am not. And if you remember like the Atlas carrying the weight of the world, I talk about being alone at the center. If you can imagine with us at the center, the weight of the world is really resting on our shoulders. Which we We've were never designed to never, attempt to carry. Never, ever designed for that. But that's what we have bought culturally. And even in the church, we've started to adopt that posture. And it's just wearing us down to the point we can't breathe. And this confession of the creature is to step out of center. And it sounds so simple, but it's really freeing to say, you are God and I am not. And so here are all of the things that I have been carrying on me that do not belong on my show. I was never made for that. I was made for this relationship and to find life flowing from you. And so I talk about in the book, waiting in a place until that is the honest outpouring of your heart. Mm-hmm. You are God and I am not. And where we can honestly say that to him. I, I just love that it calls us back to uh, the vision that we must have in order not to perish, which is an awkward way of saying it, but that vision is Jesus. But you go from there, vision up, vision in, vision out. Uh, the vision is Jesus. Explain that because it's an important way for us to see the world 
uh, and to see our role in God's kingdom. Yeah, it's it's just such a gentle way. You used that word earlier that Jesus's invitation is really gentle. It's easy. And when we come to him, the first thing that happens is we've been talking about this primary relationship is creature creator. And so we look to him and everything has to start there because that is where that weight shifts. And we realize that we are not at the center and that he is God and we are not. And that really unlocks for the creature our primary position and our primary posture, which is one of adoration. It's we were made to I, I say we were made to love him back. And so this is the first thing that must happen. And we, in, these things happen in sequence. It's kind of a trail. We use that trail mm-hmm. imagery. But the first thing that happens to us is we encounter this perfect love in God and we receive it and we want to love him back. And it's in that adoration that we discover that not only has that, is that our vision up, we're looking to him, but it's in that place that we recover our identity, our true identity, and we realize that same life has been given to me. And now my, my destiny is really to look just like him. And as that transformation takes place, we talk about, we talk about it in terms of love maturing. Mm-hmm. And really transformation is just our lives, his love in us maturing and maturing and maturing, leaving infancy, passing through adolescence, and reaching that really generous place of mature love. Coming up, a new hymn from the Gettys. She came up with this great melody. I did a little upright piano in my office, and I heard it, and I went, oh, my goodness. Stay with us for the final segment of The Christian Outlook. When the bride of Christ, Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Kevin McCullough. Complete reliance on Christ. I hope that's what you've taken away from that conversation with Zach Elliott in our last segment. Complete reliance leads us to a place of worship. That's what my friends Keith and Kristen Getty have been doing for decades now. They are leading hymn writers of our generation, and they have a new song of adoration just released. I spoke with Keith about The Lord Almighty Reigns. You've got a brand new song out today. Give me a a little uh, what's behind the music there. Well, it's called The Lord Almighty Reigns. Uh, It's a song about heaven, but it's a song that reminds us about what our future is. really echoes what you just said in the last 30 seconds, that we live with this incredible promise that affects how we eat breakfast each day, how we think about our struggles, and how we worship. And uh, we are just thrilled to release it today. It's called The Lord Almighty Reigns. It's out on YouTube and Spotify and all, all the different Apple and all those all yeah. those um, streaming streaming sites. And, but we want people to listen to it. We want them to sing it. And we want them to use it in their church and remind us of heaven. 80% of the great hymns throughout history, over 80% of them, according to hymnologists, talked about heaven. Wow. Modern, worship, modern, modern, modern worship music gives us between 3 and 4%. Oh, that is a very uh, kind of lopsided uh, <laughs> reversal there. Well, as as long as you think of this life as all there is, then it's perfect. Yeah. Well, let's. Uh, so, uh, what was the inspiration for the lyric and the and the melody? Where'd you get it from? Well, it was it was it was my wife uh, wanted wanted to write a hymn just on Revelation because of course Revelation itself is a of worship. It's it's uh, it's 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 a, it's a great collection of singing. Hymns to our Creator, to our Redeemer, to the One who is uh, beyond all things. And so she thought she just picked the Lord Almighty reigns, and she came up with this great melody. I did a little upright piano in my office, and uh, and I heard it, and I went, "Oh my goodness!" Yeah. So 
So Pap and Balls were in town, and they came around, and the three of us worked and worked. And we took it to Ireland and kept working at it. And uh, oh, we're, we're just so excited. And we're doing it this weekend with uh, with a gospel choir, which is just going to be extraordinary. Also doing it with Blessing Offer. And uh, the Shane that just recorded it as well that came out soon. So really excited about, about the song. I'm well, really excited. We'll go out with a bit of The Lord Almighty Reigns. There's an endless song waiting to be sung with the voice of every tribe the sound of every tongue when the bride of christ on that day of days brings with joy unto the lamb a multitude of praise like the roar of mighty seas and rolls of thunder hear his people sing That wraps up this edition of The Christian Outlook. If you enjoyed the program, share it with a friend. Send them to christianoutlook.com, subscribe to our podcast, and thanks for joining us today. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin, producers David Posehan, Mike Cook, and Nicholas Malone, I'm Kevin McCullough. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook.